Hey guys, it's your host Matt, and uh, this is sort of hard to talk about for me, but it's with an extremely heavy heart that I have to relay to you that my co-host, collaborator, confidant, friend, Michael, uh, in his service to this country, has run afoul of a gang of 8th graders, and heaven's gained another autistic angel, I'm afraid, to inform. It started Tuesday morning when a package was delivered to my home. The contents were what appeared to be body hair intermixed with Jolly Ranchers and various other hard candies half melted, approximating some sort of 21st century tar and feathering. Along was Michael's badge, covered in a sticky, white, liquidy substance, which, upon forensic investigation, turned out to be Bang Energy Drink Pina Colada flavor. You rotten sons of bitches! I'm sorry. Sorry, I, th- I know these are children we're talking with. It, just, it really hurts. It wouldn't be until Thursday morning when his body would be found in front of a in front of the county community center. Uh, he he had defensive wounds consistent with titty twisters, Indian burns. Charlie horses, the the worst things you could put a man through past a certain age. And worst of all, is he had piano wire driven through his wrists, knees, and ankles and attached to some sort of gear pace wind-up mechanical object that kept him on a near-constant loop of Fortnite dances. Uh, just a grim display of someone that I've, you know, been very close with over the years. And, well, this, this show goes out to you. Rest easy, young Michael. Well, that's enough of that. Which, this all is to say that uh, we're doing a rebrand. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Trash Trafficking with your host, Matt Bolden. That's me. Uh, today, we're going to continue with Cronenberg Month, as I announced last month when we were still doing Westerns, because I think it's consistent with what the new show is going to be. Once I get through this Cronenberg month, I might do a change of format to make it more suitable for a solo host. Uh, With that being said, I'm going to try to be better about reaching out and getting guests to collaborate on episodes. I think that would be a lot of fun. Uh, So if you're one of the half dozen people that listen to this shit, chances are you're probably going to be asked to be on this show at some point. Uh... Today's movie, we're going to be doing 1983's Videodrome from David Cronenberg. What are you going to do about it, asshole? Where did you learn your trade, you stupid fucking cunt, you idiot? Whoever told you that you could work with men? I don't care whose nephew you are, who you know, whose dick you're sucking on, you're going out. You want to win by one point or fucking 30 points, KG, right? I see you out there when the fucking stadium's all booed. Come on, KG, this is no different than that. This is me, all right? I'm not a fucking athlete. This is my fucking way. This is how I win. But before we get into that, I'm going to talk a little bit about what I've watched the past couple of weeks or so. The big thing would be probably I got to go see the revitalized Black Dahlia murder on tour. I saw them with Terror, Phobotic. I'm having a hard time remembering the opening band's name. It was really weird. Uh, Terror and Black Dahlia murder were the headliners. And it was a fantastic show. It was at Eastside Bowl in Madison which is like a suburb of Nashville for those uninitiated, but it was a lot nicer than going to a show in Nashville proper. You don't have to deal with all the typical parking bullshit. Uh, The venue used to be an old Kmart, so there's a huge lot that they have themselves. Just the best thing that you want from any venue is free parking. Uh, This is the first tour that Black Dahlia Murder's been on since the death of their vocalist Trevor uh, about two two, three years ago, uh, taking over for his vocal duties as, I believe, the founding guitarist for the band. 
But uh, it was a great show, great in tribute. Uh, if you follow my personal Instagram, I have some videos. I think I have mostly recorded Terror's set because that's who I was mainly going there to see. Of course, uh, Scott Vogel brings it down like always. Uh, what else have I watched? I've been catching up on season two of Yellow Jackets. I'm not completely caught up yet. I think as of recording, there's about six episodes, and I'm on maybe three or four. But it's fleshed out pretty nice since the first season. Uh, I can't really say a whole lot without spoiling the previous season if you haven't seen it. Just know that it's a 90s Lord of the Flies type situation. I have been getting a little irritated with the constant 90s needle drops. But I guess that's just the byproduct of being at my current age. You know, you think I'm 31 years old, so the people that are the current tastemakers when it comes to like production are going to be a couple years older than me. So they're going to be sticking to all the shit that was popular in their youth, you know. It doesn't bother them that every fucking show is doing this right now because in their mind, oh, I've been dreaming of this moment forever. I've always wanted to use Cherub Rock by Smashing Pumpkins for a scene. It's like, well, yeah, now you and six other fucking dudes are doing that. And, you know, I grew up loving licensed soundtracks. A lot of my musical taste was impacted by licensed soundtracks from films. I would go up and buy up, you know, the 90s Batman soundtracks. The Crow soundtrack was huge for me as a kid. But there just seemed to be an oversaturation of needle drops. And I, I don't know. I mean, another thing, I come from, like, the... Scorsese school of needle drops. I fucking love them, but it just feels so excessive now. Not just in Yellow Jackets, but in all these sort of nostalgia bent shows that are on right now. And like I said, a lot of it's going to be 90s throwback shit because most people that are tastemakers in the industry right now are about, you know, in their mid to late 30s and they grew up in the 90s. So I, maybe if you're an older film fan, have you experienced shit like this with like maybe. I don't know, 80s nostalgia throwback a couple years ago with like Stranger Things and shit. Does that bother you? There's plenty of things that bother me about Stranger Things, but the needle drops haven't especially irritated me. Well, I guess a little update on the current NBA Finals. As of May 13th, which is when I'm recording, uh, the Lakers have eliminated the Warriors, which complicated feelings i mean i guess it's good that the warriors can't talk shit about the grizzlies since they got eliminated by the same team but i'm still bitter as fuck at the lakers i guess out of the teams remaining i'm still pulling for philly i believe their game seven with boston hasn't occurred yet i might be wrong uh the miami heat have eliminated the knicks in a series that i didn't particularly feel invested in but hey it's always good to see jimmy bucket shine uh the nuggets eliminated Fuck, who were the Nuggets even playing? Uh, oh, the Suns. Yeah, they fucking eliminated the Suns. Yeah, I believe Chris Paul was out most of the series with some kind of growing injury. Injury, But you would think that Devin Booker and Kevin Durant would have enough firepower to still be contentious in that series, but apparently not. It all comes down to who I would personally cast as Judge Holden in a film adaptation of Blood Meridian, Nikola Jokic, the Joker. Fuck me. It's so weird to just talk to yourself. Especially about things you're quasi-passionate about. Well, I guess that's been what I've watched this past week. I don't know that we're going to keep doing the Enemies of the Pod segment, considering I'm kind of a bitchy person to start with. And so you're going to, throughout the course of each episode, figure out what I'm irritated about. But, for the sake of it, let's drop the stinger, because I worked hard on it months ago. I can't stop crying. Fuck you! You suck! Fuck you, asshole. Fuck you, asshole. If I were to do an enemy of the pod this week, I guess it would be Bob Iger and about seven or eight other streaming and cable CEOs that have grossed in the past year roughly a half billion dollars in personal salaries between about six people while the white writer strike is uh currently going on it's especially uh disgusting i think with bob Iger and disney as a corporation i've been vocal about how i'm grossed out by their rapacious 
business practices when it comes to gobbling up intellectual property and uh, how they've like bent uh, copyright law to maintain their own uh, intellectual property whenever Mickey Mouse and shit like that should be public domain. Uh, <clears throat> speaking of public domain, uh, there's been like a lot of Winnie the Pooh media since he entered public domain. I think that's another one that Disney was trying to buy up super fast. But if you're going to be like an evil conglomeration, the least you could fucking do is pay your henchmen. If your writing team can't even afford to live in the cities where you operate out of, say, mainly Orlando and L.A., then, well, I mean, it's only a matter of time before you're ready to just outsource it, just like you have your animation. Disney's famous for outsourcing their animation to South Korea and Vietnam and other uh, East Asian countries. So it's only a matter of time before they outsource the writing to that. If I mean... That's just what makes logical sense if you're unwilling to pay the people that prop up your fucking company. Uh, A very obnoxious argument that's come up in the current Riders Guild strike is prevailing uh, AI technology and how that could potentially replace riders. That is so far from happening at this moment in technology, but it is not something we should strive towards. The purpose of AI should be able to automate menial tasks so humans have more time to pursue creative pursuits. Pursue creative pursuits. I'm a fucking idiot. You know, any labor cause is going to be near and dear to my heart, but whenever it comes to the arts, it feels especially egregious because you're attacking, like, the ethos of a country whenever you try to kneecap its entertainment sector. And I know I've also been very critical of the entertainment industry as a whole, and it deserves to be critiqued. But at the same time, while I don't place the most sociological value in entertainment, I think it's kind of shallow, you know, concept of representation when it comes to, like, fucking kids' movies and shit. But at the end of the day, it's necessary. I think it's... I think art in general is probably the best gauge for how a society is doing... And unfortunately, when a society is at its worst, that's when art is at its best. And, you know, maybe that's why, you know, we're so good at it. I I will say in the idea of AI taking over writing for television writers, Netflix might be the one corporation that could probably get away with it with how formulaic their TV series have been over the last couple of years. You could definitely train an AI to hit the exact same plot beats in Stranger Things or Cobra Kai. So, hey, you know, I hope the writers at Netflix do get uh, their demands met. I'm not sure. I'm assuming it's just like scaled on a scaled pay for the work is the main issue right now. And I know with Netflix and other streaming apps in particular, there's been some controversy about them hiding from creators uh, the amount of plays or views that they get because that would mean they would have to pay out more in dividends that were owed to the writers, which... It might be such a new thing that there aren't laws around that, but there fucking ought to be. Uh, If if a streaming service isn't being transparent with its views, then what are they showing to their investors? What are they showing to stockholders? What are they showing to, like I said, the creatives that are making all this content that keep this platform afloat? Well, I guess that's going to be the end of the Enemies of the Pod segment this week. I guess we'll just jump right into it. Phase. What phase? 
face was that? Your body has already done a lot of changing. That's only the beginning. The beginning of the new flesh. Today we're doing Videodrome from 1983. It was written and directed by David Cronenberg. It stars James Wood, Debbie Harry, Sonia Smits. The cinematography was done by Mark Irwin, who won a couple of independent awards for this. Uh, and an interesting thing about the cinematography in this movie is that a decent portion of it was filmed on video cassette, giving it the grainy public access TV look to it, while the rest were filmed on traditional. Uh, theater cameras. Uh, I believe the videotape cameras that were used in these segments was uh, by Hitachi, who makes you know more than just vibrators. Uh, the music was done by Howard Shore, which also has a very interesting quality to it. It starts out very traditional and orchestral, but as the movie progresses, it takes on a more synthetic, new wavy synthwave form. The budget for this film was $6 million with a box office return of only $2.1 million, so only making about 30% of its budget. Back a third, I reckon. Film was partially financed by the Canadian government and partially financed by Universal Studios. This was the first time that Cronenberg was really given a large budget to work with. This mostly being due to his success with Scanners, Rabbit, and Shivers, his uh, late 70s work that he started off with. But uh, Canada always has a history with financing independent film, especially David Cronenberg. And so it's good to see that like, even with a, you know, a 33 and a third repeating percent box office return, that it didn't hinder his career much. Uh, in recent years, Cronenberg has kind of slowed down his creative output, which he's said that it's mostly due to having trouble finding financing, which, you know, I find hard to believe because he's such an iconic filmmaker, but right about now is where I typically have someone else read the synopsis, but I have no one else now. So let me get into the plot of Videodrome, even though my phone just fucking wiped it away. Max Wren, played by James Wood, is the president of Civic TV, a sleazy Toronto UHF television station specializing in sensationalistic programming. Displeased with the station's current lineup, which mostly consists of softcore pornography, Ren is seemingly on an endless quest for something that isn't so soft and will break through to a new audience. One morning, Ren is summoned to the clandestine office of Harlan, who operates Civic TV's pirate satellite dish a technologically advanced satellite run on an amalgamation of high-tech components that allows it to pirate broadcast from as far away as Asia. Harlan shows Wren Videodrome, a plotless television show apparently being broadcast out of Malaysia, which depicts brutal torture and eventual murder of anonymous victims in a bizarre reddish-orange chamber. Believing this to be the future of television, Snuff TV, Wren dubs it, Ren orders Harlan to begin pirating the show. Appearing later on the Rena King TV talk show, sort of a Sally, Jessica, Raphael, or a Jenny Craig, or Phil Donahue type public access talk show, Ren defends his station's programming choices to Nikki Brand, played by Debbie Harry, credited as Deborah Harry from the band Blondie. Uh, she plays a sadomasochistic psychiatrist radio host, Kind of like a extra horny Fraser Crane, if you could imagine such a thing. Also on the panel on this talk show is Dr. Brian Oblivion, played by Jack Creeley, a pop culture analyst and philosopher who only appears on television if his image is broadcast into the studio onto a television from a remote location. Oblivion hijacks the interview and delivers a speech prophesizing a future in which television supplements real life. After this, Ren takes Nikki on a date. He was sexually aroused when Ren shows her an episode of Videodrome and coaxes him into having sex with her while they watch it. Ren goes once again to Harlan's office where Harlan informs him that the signal delay, which caused it to appear to be coming from Malaysia, was a ploy by the broadcaster. In fact, Videodrome is being broadcast out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 
When Wren tells Nikki of this discovery, she excitedly goes to Pittsburgh to try an audition for the show. When Nikki fails to return to Toronto, Wren contacts Masha Borowski, played by Lynn Gorman, a softcore feminist pornographer with a long-standing ties to the porn community. Ask her for help to help him find out the truth about Videodrome. Through Masha, Wren learns that Videodrome is the public face of a political ideology. Man, the fucking grammar on this IMDb synopsis. Through Masha, Wren learns that Videodrome is the public face of a political ideological movement with unspecified but apparent violent goals. Masha further informs Wren that Brian Oblivion knows about Videodrome. Max Wren tracks down Oblivion's office to the cathode ray mission. This is like a homeless shelter where individuals are provided food, shelter, clothing, and encouraged to engage in marathon sessions of television viewing. Hey, fucking sign me up. Wren discovers that the mission is run by Oblivion's daughter Bianca, played by Sonia Smits. With the goal of helping to bring about her father's vision of a world in which television replaces every aspect of everyday life. Later, Wren views a videotape in which Oblivion informs him that the Videodrome is a socio-political battleground in which war is being fought for control of the minds of the people of North America. Shortly thereafter, Wren begins experiencing disturbing hallucinations in which his torso trans- transforms into a bloody vaginal VCR. Well... Let me go ahead and make a little correction on IMDb synopsis here. It's not a VCR because he can only put Betamax tapes into it because Betamax tapes are smaller than VHS tapes and that's what would fit into the apparatus. So reading out just a plain uh, description of what ha- what's happening isn't exactly enough, I don't think. Whenever Max begins to watch Videodrome, there's like a sort of radiation that comes from the video that... Uh, begins to stimulate a malignant brain tumor in the viewer. This is what causes Max to start having hallucinations, the first major one being a yonic orifice opening on his torso. Uh, For the uninitiated, yonic is the opposite of phallic, or as I just uh, described, a vaginal-like opening. Uh, James Wood was on record as saying, if he ever has to do a stunt like this again, he is quitting film. Uh, apparently, he had to be like glued to a couch to make the effect work in the initial scene. So when this happens, Max is already kind of running ragged mentally. He's already starting to have breaks with reality, and this is his first instance with it. Uh, he has a gun with him while he is experiencing this hallucination, and he slides the gun into the vaginal-like opening on his abdomen... And then immediately loses the gun. Pulls his hand back out completely empty. Alright, back to the synopsis. The hood comes off to reveal Nikki. Her lips fill the screen of the TV set where she says, Come to me. Ren leans in close, pulling and undulating the screen. Undulating the screen envelops his face. Who fucking wrote this? Okay, so this is one of the coolest effects in the movie. Oh, I should have mentioned this with the fucking casting credits. The special effects in this movie were done by Rick Baker, and they were some of the most insane practical effects that have ever been filmed. Uh, There's a theme with Cronenberg's body horror, the melding of technology and flesh, and we have what appears to be an organic television set that swells and contracts as if it's breathing, and it has veins throughout it. Uh... While Max is hallucinating in seeing, uh, shit, the, the Debbie Harry character, Nikki, when he's seeing Nikki on the video drum set, uh, her mouth becomes, it takes up the entire screen and begins to, like, protrude from the television set and envelops Max's entire head in a weird sort of, uh, psychosexual hallucination. At the mission, Bianca tells Ren that these are side effects from having viewed Videodrome, which is in fact the carrier of a malicious broadcast signal that causes the view. Okay, I've been over this. Brian Oblivion helped create this as part of his vision for the future, but when he found out that it was to be used as a malicious weapon, he attempted to stop his partners. They used his own invention to kill him. In the year before his death, Oblivion recorded tens of thousands of videos which now form the basis of his television appearances. Bianca sends Ren away with an armful of videotapes to watch. As he watches one tape holding it, oh, what? No, I just went over that. Ren is contacted by Videodrome's producer, the Spectacular Optical Corporation. 
an eyeglass company that acts as a front for a NATO's weapon manufacturer. The head of Spectacular Optical, Barry Convex, played by Leslie Carlson, has been working with Harlan to get Wren to broadcast Videodrome as part of a crypto-government conspiracy to morally and ideologically purge North America, giving fatal brain tumors to low lives fixated on extreme sex and violence. Convex produces a high-tech helmet to record Wren's hallucinations to find out why he seems to be functioning when none of the other test subjects has returned to normality. Convex places the helmet on Wren's he- head and leaves the room. Uh, an interesting fact here, in the scene where uh, Max Wren wears the helmet to record his hallucinations, it's actually David Cronenberg's body as they were afraid that the prop might electrocute James Woods to death. Wren hallucinates himself in Videodrome with Nikki as he whips an organic TV set similar to the one in the previous scene. Nikki's image transforms into Masha. Uh, that was his older partner that was had the ties to the softcore porn business. Ren wakes up in his own bed with Masha dead at his side. Ren calls Harlan to come over with his camera, but when he arrives, he sees nothing in the bed to photograph. Totally wired, Ren says they must watch last night's Videodrome broadcast as he is in it. At the lab, Harlan reveals that there was never a broadcast, only pre-recorded videotapes, which he never watched. Just then, Convex enters. He says they chose a- Channel 83 for the trans- first transmission of the Videodrome signal because of its sleazy content and audience. Why would anybody watch a show like Videodrome? Under Convex's influence, he produces a pulsating VHS tape. Again, it's a Betamax tape. And Ren's stomach slit opens to reveal his program. Convex orders Ren to kill your partners and give me Channel 83. Uh, Channel 83 is Civic TV, the small UHF station that Max Renner runs. Ren pulls his gun back from the stomach slit, and the black metal tendrils extend into his hand. This is another cool effect where when he retrieves the gun from inside his abdomen, it melds itself to his hand in a very cool kind of steampunk body horror. Uh, if you've ever seen Tetsuo the Iron Man or any of the that trilogy, very similar, which I believe this predates. Ren goes back to Civic TV and shoots both Moses and Raphael. Those are his business partners in the channel station. He shoots them in the boardroom with his gun slash hand, now a single organic fusion. His next program is to kill Bianca Oblivion. He breaks into the mission but hesitates when Bianca plays him Nikki's death scene on Videodrome. She was killed on the show along with all those other people by a spectacular optical corporation. A flesh gun emerges from the TV set and shoots him. A violent deprogramming. Bianca inserts her own tape into Ren's vaginal stomach slit. With that, she reprograms him to go after the ones responsible for creating Videodrome. She tells them that he is the video word made flesh. Death to Videodrome. Long live the new flesh. Back at Channel 83 Studio, Harlan congratulates Ren on his good work and changes his program. When Harlan withdraws his hand from Ren's slit to retrieve the videotape program, he is horrified that they see that his hand has become a ticking, bloody, organic grenade. The explosion kills Harlan and blows a hole through the wall of the studio, which Ren calmly steps out of. At the spectacular optical trade show at the Toronto Convention Center, Convex introduces the new spring collection, the Medici, the Medici range. Ren approaches the stage and shoots Convex with his gun hand, who falls dead and his entire body erupts in a gory and sickening mass of tumors as people scream in panic. Ren waves his hand slash gun to the assembly declaring, Death to Videodrome! Long live the new flesh! Afterwards, Ren takes refuge at a derelict boat in an abandoned harbor where Nikki appears to him on another television set. As Ren sits on a filthy mattress, Nikki tells him that he has weakened Videodrome, but in order to completely defeat it, he has to leave the old flesh. The television then shows an image of Ren shooting himself in the head with his gun slash hand, which causes the TV set to explode, splattering the deck of the ship with bloody human intestines and multicolored goo. Imitating what he's just seen on the TV, Ren says his final words, Long live the new flesh, and then pulls the trigger. Cut to credits. I hope that was a coherent synopsis because it didn't feel it as I was reading it out. But hey, maybe on editing I can make it coherent. 
the ending to the film was actually written by James Woods himself, or improv by James Woods. There was about three different endings that Cronenberg was kicking around with, with James Woods' decision to have uh, Max Wren just kill himself at the end, being what won out immediately. Or eventually, not immediately. Fucking. So, what is this movie exactly trying to say? What is Cronenberg's uh, bent with technology and body horror meant to say? Well, for me personally, I can say that there are a few fictional characters that I relate to more than James Wood's portrayal of Max Wren. When I was a younger man, uh, I've always had an obsession with horror films, but past a certain point, you stop being scared. You kind of deaden your nerves. You acid etch your brain till it's completely fucking smooth so when you can't scare yourself anymore well the next best thing is to disturb yourself so you just start finding more and more extreme horror films or dark you know new wave french dramas the shit that turns you inside out but even then past a certain point you just start to dull and dull the senses and you crave more and more stimulation and for a young man like myself with, you know, below average emotional intelligence, that's the stimulation. That's what is easily sought out. And past a certain point, fiction and narrative stop being enough. This is when you get into the live leak side of the internet, or at least for my generation, that's how it came about. Now, does this say more about me as an individual? Maybe some undiagnosed ADHD or Asperger's or something like that or is it more to do with the fact that as a young child I saw footage from Columbine the Columbine high school shooting or bodies falling out of the towers on 9-11 things that you know the young mind isn't meant to see but in a much more connected post-internet world you're going to be exposed to and I think an interesting thing about this film is that it's a meditation on violence and media in a pre-Tipper Gore society. For those that don't remember Tipper Gore, Al Gore's ex-wife, while he was, I think he was still a senator when she began her, uh, not the MPAA, but whatever the uh, coalition that brought about the parental advisory stickers on CDs. She was a big part of that. Uh, Glenn Danzig's song, Mother, is entirely about wanting to fight Tipper Gore. (laughs) But I think... Cronenberg, who's made a career off of very sensationalistic material, both violent and sexual, seems to have a very concerned eye towards it in this film. Not necessarily critical, it's just more of a, is this a disease or a symptom? And as I kind of mentioned earlier with the writer's strike, that art, I think, best serves as a thermometer for a society. And whenever you start getting exceptionally violent and sexual media, you know, you're taking the temperature of the country. The country is feeling gross, uh, misogynistic, uh, hateful. But there's a lot more nuance to Cronenberg's argument than, say, you know, the puritanical Christian right of yesteryear or current day. You know, it just takes different forms now through different petty culture war bullshit. Uh, it's, now it's not, you know, you're worried your kids are shooting people in GTA. Now it's you're worried that Mr. Potato Head might have a pussy but i think overall cronenberg has this thing with his body horror where he kind of likes to take the perspective of the disease not the host and in this use of video drum as a weapon against the degenerate population of north america as the plot unfolds you see sort of a not only a religious right culling of social social uh, sociological aberrations but you also see some like cold war hysteria in the scene with uh with harlan and wren and the optical illusions ceo he goes on this diatribe about how the west has become weak and degenerate and so through this biological weapon by pumping radiation through people's television signals you know he reveals that like the violent content of Videodrome has nothing to do with the malignant tumor that it goes. It's radiation from the signal. The The purpose of the 
snuff films that are broadcast on Videodrome is to draw in a specific crowd to target with this weapon. So it's kind of hard to nail down what exactly Cronenberg wants to say with this film. It's maybe that there's nothing wrong with violence and sexuality in the arts, but there is something wrong with it in society as a whole. It's a manifestation of our most negative traits and how we treat one another. I think the expression of those feelings in the format of art is an outlet. Uh, the Max Wren character makes this very argument on the uh, television panel show early in the, earlier in the film. And there's some merit to that argument. I do think that violent media can be a healthy outlet, but when you live in a current day America where mental health is at an all-time low and people are more isolated than usual or than they have been in past decades, it's easy to fall into this uh, misanthropic wormhole, uh, or at least that was my experience with it as a young man. I think maybe violent or overly stimulating art is not necessarily, you know, inherently morally corrosive, but an overindulgence of it can be a symptom of depression. Uh, I think something we've noticed in the last few years sociologically that depressed people that are kind of terminally online tend to fall into more extreme political ideologies, specifically far-right ones. Uh, I think a lot of mass shooters in this country have fallen down sort of nihilistic, white supremacist rabbit holes. But I don't know that, say, watching John Wick, you know, had anything to do with it for them. Uh, if anything, it just made their gun collection a little nicer. I think that another commentary that Cronenberg is trying to make with this film is he sort of prods at the urban legend of the snuff film. Now, to speak on snuff films, you kind of need to have a very specific definition. And the very specific definition is intentional homicide on camera for the purpose of monetary gain. That's a pretty narrow definition. And by that definition, there's been no recordings of that ever actually happening. Because if you're trying to make money off some of that, you're more than likely going to get caught for the murder. But if we broaden that definition out a little bit into other types of gain that's not monetary, like say propaganda gain or uh, sensationalizing a documentary, something that Michael Moore's been criticized for. As I mentioned earlier, like I believe the Columbine footage had a big impact on me as a child, as well as the 9-11 footage, both things that were featured heavy in his documentaries Bowling for Columbine and Fahrenheit 9-11, things that weren't necessarily, I don't think they added anything to the documentary other than shock value. But there's a difference between shock value in a fictional narrative and shock value when it's real human life. You know, it's, you know, some of the other ways that you can gain from producing a snuff film would be like propaganda purposes, such as, you know, uh, in the early aughts, we saw a lot of uh, Al Qaeda beheading videos. Uh, there was also a Chechen Russian war going on at the time, and we would see executions from that. And, of course, you know, you have serial killers that would post their crimes online in, a, in an attempt for clout, I guess you could say. And what's clout if not personal propaganda? But the Videodrome, I don't know that it's specifically making a connection towards the type of people that would seek that kind of thing out. Because we're talking in the days of, you know, TV piracy, satellite signals, where you really had to have some know-how to find something like that. And chances are you would just stumble across it because of a, you know, errant signal. Cronenberg spoke that uh, his inspiration for the film came growing up as a young boy in Canada. He would often get late-night broadcasts from Buffalo, New York, and the American TV stations would show more graphic and sensual uh, material than was present in his hometown of Toronto, Canada. I think there's some supplemental reading that I think really goes hand-in-hand hand with this book. If you are so inclined to have a reading list that goes hand-in-hand hand with David Cronenberg's Videodrome, one, or I'm going to kind of count these two together. First, Chaos by Tom O'Neill, which is uh, a deep investigation into the Manson family murders in which 
uh, O'Neill posits that the Sharon Tate murders was part of a larger conspiracy that may have ties to MK Ultra, and we see bits of that within Videodrome and how uh, Videodrome itself the the signal that causes malignant brain tumors in its viewers was meant to be a weapon used by NATO for Cold War purposes. And uh, another book that's along the similar lines is, uh, it's called Program to Kill, the <laughs> Program to Kill? Program to Kill, the Politics of Serial Murder uh, by David McGowan, I believe wrote that. Uh, that one gets a little deeper into MH Ultra, which was a an adjacent program to MK Ultra. It's essentially the same thing, but this is uh, it posits that a lot of serial killings in the 70s and 80s were in uh, different ways attached to the intelligence community of the United States, both in uh, you know stopping uh, counterculture of the time. Well, no, maybe not 70s and 80s. I guess 60s and 70s would be more accurate because. A lot of these were, you know, targeted racial attacks meant to kind of cull the burgeoning uh, civil rights movement. You also had the Manson family murders, which was kind of meant to drive a stake into the heart of the love generation, which, hey, successfully well done. And I promise that it's not quite as cartoonish as it comes across, you know, just the way I'm describing it right now. It's not Charles Manson met a guy in a black suit with a fedora you know the typical visual representation of the g-man he said hey you know i want you to go up in these hills and kill these yuppies and blame it on black people that's not exactly how mk ultra and all the preceding uh, programs attached to the intelligence community were operating on typically you would find someone that is chronically depressed and has other mental issues uh, we used to call it a uh, MPD, multiple personality disorder, but now it's more uh, colloquially known as DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder. That's what we call it now. And, of course, a big part of uh, MKUltra and like-minded projects was the use of heavy uh, hallucinogens to see the effect on the mind. They, They would also use, like, weed and stuff and electroshock therapy to the point where, you know, people's teeth would crack from the convulsions. I think some of them even had, like, spinal injuries from convulsing so hard. Uh, Alan Dulles, uh, one of the fathers of the CIA, had his own son committed to such treatment when he came back from the Korean War with brain damage. And uh, we see this with the Max Wren character in that not only is he uh, run ragged from experiencing like the murder on tape of Videodrome causing him emotional distress, but also the malignant brain tumor has made him susceptible to not just uh, the people at Spectacular Optics to control him, but even Bianca Oblivion. And I think uh, that makes the ending all the more interesting when Max Wren kills himself supposedly under the order of Bianca Oblivion through the visage of... Uh, Debbie Harry's character. We see uh, an increase in uh, his mental state degrading over time, making him more susceptible to this violence, to being programmed. So, yeah, programmed to kill. Amazing companion piece for this movie, uh, movie, I think. And I feel like I've uh, focused way too much on the violence and the concept of snuff films and not at all on the sexual aspect. I think that might be me telling on myself a little bit there. But uh, the way the porn industry has evolved since 1983 is definitely something worth being looked at, too. I mean, when it comes to the internet age, porn has always been on the cutting edge. Like, they were the first ones to have streaming video long before YouTube. They were the first one to figure out hosting massive video libraries like that. And I don't know that porn as far as content goes, has really changed. I think, you know, every fetish that's represented now, if it's not directly tied to, you know, current technology, like the Chinese dick-sucking robot or whatever, it's mostly remained the same. It's just, it's so much more accessible now in the internet age. And I do think that's had an impact on young men. 
uh, and I don't mean to be an old head about it, you know, back in my day, I walked 12 miles uphill in the snow barefoot just to look at a pair of titties. It, but there is something to be said in when you're discovering your sexuality as a young man, there needs to be a slow, maybe not slow, but like some sort of escalation. You don't need to jump straight to the first page of Pornhub. And also with the communication technology advancing so much, not just in the internet, but like having a personal computer in your pocket at all times. Like by the time my family got usable broadband internet, I was probably the tail end of middle school and it was on the family desktop. So there was still like, you know, a reasonable amount of shame to keep me from bricking the family computer. If I'm going to brick the family computer, I'm at least going to download some movies illegally first, not porn movies, just movie movies, you know, the good kind. But there's also, like, an absence of softcore uh, pornography, I think. Or maybe it's just I'm not seeking that out. But we see, even in this film, Max's sort of disdain for the softcore stuff as being boring and artsy-fartsy through the Masha character. Because that's what she works in, is, you know, a Nuevo uh, European art softcore and uh the japanese businessmen at the beginning of the film are trying to sell uh max on a um a softcore porn series called samurai dreams which uh with a little bit of know-how on the japanese film industry i think this might have been uh what they they call a pink film which is like a hybrid between software softcore pornography that's hard to be saying a bunch softcore porn well maybe it's not hard maybe i'm just fucking mushy mouth today but uh, the Japanese film industry has these things called pink films, which is a hybrid between an actual like erotic thriller and softcore pornography. And I imagine that's what this uh, Samurai Dream series that they're trying to sell them. And I forget what Masha's uh, softcore porn series she's trying to sell. It's got Apollo and Dionysus. It's like Greek themed. But you don't really have that anymore. And uh, you also really don't really have... Uh, sexually explicit r-rated movies anymore that's also like something that like the first nudity i ever saw that uh on screen would probably be from r-rated movies whether it's like raunchy sex comedies of the late 90s and early 2000s or just you know your average action film from the 70s or 80s which you know why wouldn't there be a set of titties in there but i think that with the internet age and such easy accessibility like I don't think the problem is any type, any one specific kind of hardcore pornography. It's just how easy it is to get to and be discreet when you're young. Of course, you're going to make some rookie mistakes along the way, but uh, I mean, like, what kid under 10 doesn't have some kind of tablet, if not a cell phone, at this point? And what kid's curiosity isn't eventually going to take them to Pornhub? Because that's, you know, it's as big a name as Google or Facebook or any other tech company. I mean, we're talking, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars just through that one site per cycle. I mean, you know the name Pornhub as well as you know the name fucking Wheaties or Captain Crunch. And similar to the violence, jumping straight into the hardcore pornography when you're a a young, impressionable person, it's there is a desensitization and maybe a little, maybe you lose yourself a little too much in fantasy fulfillment because the way I've always thought about pornography, pornography is that porn is to sex. What professional wrestling is to fighting. It's not real. It's theatrics. You know, no woman makes those kinds of noise when you have sex. Uh, and most women that you have sex with are not going to look the way that porn stars look because it's like, uh, it's to the extreme. You know, I mean, I'm sure, yeah, there's, you know, amateur porn where, you know, people look a little more normal, I guess, and less plasticky, less worked on, less artificial. But, and, and I'm not shit on anyone that gets plastic surgery done. I'm, hey, the second. The second I have the money, your boy is getting plugged up on the scalp. But maybe you shouldn't be figuring out what your specific kink is before you can drive a car. I don't know. Is that reasonable? 
I once you're capable of operating a motor vehicle, then you can figure out what you're really fucking into. And uh, also, like, the ties between violent material and depression also goes with uh, pornography. You're going to consume a lot more of it when you're depressed and lonely and feeling isolated. And uh, that loneliness can manifest itself into, like, a very hateful, misogynistic attitude. It can cause you to lash out at the fairer sex. And I'm saying all this from the perspective of a, a heterosexual, cisgendered, white man so obviously this can apply to anyone that's in these circumstances i'm just relating it through my lived experience uh well i hope i haven't thoroughly depressed you with this one and i hope i haven't thoroughly bored you with this one but i think that's what we're going to wrap it for this particular episode this is kind of an experiment for me with this being my first time out recording solo but i don't know in the process of recording it i was very discouraged but on listening back to some of it as you can tell the last five minutes or so i've recorded like a day after everything else because i was so crushed by it but i think this format is workable it's just going to take more on my end and i hope i can deliver that for you uh the next film, like I said, we're going to stick with Cronenberg month until I figure things out. So the next film will be uh, Cronenberg's The Fly from 1987. I think that's right. I don't have my notes on hand. Well, anyway, this has been uh, the inaugural episode of Trash Trafficking with Matt Bolden. And I'll see you next time. Every day you wake up and there'll be less of you. You live your life for them and they don't even see you. Don't even see yourself. We don't get a lot of things to really care about. I had a dream. I was under the ground. My friends and family were buried all around. And a worm took a bite of me. And then he washed it down with a bite of you. Someday eat you too. After all these years, there's a victory now. Nibbled on your feet and they nibbled on my toes. They become the same when our bodies decompose. You'll turn into dirt someday, same dirt as me. Like one becomes a two and two becomes a three. I'm an old broken down piece of meat. Same ones that eat me will some And I'm alone. Eat you too. And I deserve to be all alone.